Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, this is Babbage, our weekly technology and science podcast brought to you each Wednesday. I'm Miranda Johnson, environment correspondent for The Economist, and coming up on this week's show... At some point in the next 10 years, there will be at least one, if not more than one, profession that gets, if not eliminated, severely impacted. We'll explore the complexities in the discussion about artificial intelligence and jobs with Roy Bahat, the head of Bloomberg's venture capital fund, Bloomberg Beta. A much more profound effect will be the aging of the workforce. And so instead of asking what will happen to the accountants, let's start asking what will happen to the older accountants. Also, a pathogen that causes cystic fibrosis could be turned against tuberculosis. If you could find species of bacteria that also are fighting for territory in your lungs, they might already be using compounds to kind of stake their turf out. First, though, a quick word on Uber. It's a new beginning that starts with a familiar question. Where to? The ride-sharing company has had a tumultuous few months. It is facing accusations of stealing self-driving car technology, has dismissed several employees following internal investigations into sexism, and has seen the departure of several senior executives. Now, barely a week after this paper called for it, Travis Kalanick has stepped down as the company's CEO. Here to discuss what's next for Uber is our deputy editor, Tom Standage. Tom, there have been widespread calls for Mr. Kalanick to go. We even published an article along those lines. Did he leave or was he pushed? Oh, he was very much pushed. He thought that if he stepped away from being CEO and took this indefinite leave of absence, which is what he did last week, and it must be said that a factor in that was the fact that his mother died in an accident last month, he thought that that might sort of limit the criticism. He would only be involved, he said, in large strategic decisions. He would hand over the day-to-day running of the company to other people. But that wasn't enough. And what we saw this week, Tuesday, a group of investors, big investors in Uber, went to him. They, They wrote a letter, sent it to him, saying you've got to go. We need to have a clean break here to make this clear that the culture that you have perpetuated within the company is going to come to an end. But it's not entirely a clean break, is it? Well, he does own an enormous number of the shares, and he does have a very large number of the votes on the board. So you can't completely defenestrate him. He will stay on the board. But I think it was all a bit uncertain last week. He was taking this indefinite leave of absence. Did that mean he was going to come back eventually? I mean, it was just they wanted certainty. And this way, it's very clear Uber is going to start on the search for a new CEO. Actually, it needs more than a CEO. It needs a CFO as well, and a COO, and a head of engineering. It needs a lot of people. And meanwhile, they've been having to report pay people double the going rate to stop them from leaving. So they have a real problem with retention, with attracting people because of the reputational damage that all these scandals has done to the company. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, people have come out with an enormous amount of criticism for Uber's culture, but ultimately it is a company with a valuation of $70 billion. Its success has been shaped 
by Mr Kalanick, where will the company go next? Well, I suppose that's the paradox, really. The reason Uber did so well is in part because of his personality. And he is a, you know, someone who wouldn't take no for an answer, was prepared to play fast and loose with regulations. I mean, that's really how Uber got to where it is, by essentially saying regulations on taxis don't apply to us, regulations on employees don't apply to us, our drivers are not employees, and there have been a whole load of legal battles around that. But the reason they got so big so fast was that Mr Kalanick drove the company in that way. He has a you know very driving, forceful personality. Go fast and break things. Well, quite. Although, of course, that is a Facebook motto, which they no longer use, and they make very clear that uh, you know that's not what it's all about. And I think this is something we're seeing more generally with internet companies, which was that in the old days of the internet, as it were, 10, 15 years ago, internet companies did stuff that affected things on the internet. And nowadays, internet companies do stuff, and it affects things in the real world, like cars and employment and so on and so on, aside from just what happens within the culture of the company and for just the users of that internet service. And these services are so big and affect so many people. And I think that is something that has taken internet companies and their leaders a really long time to realise that the old kind of, oh, the normal rules don't apply to us, that was maybe a, a good thing 10, 15 years ago, but these days you really can't stick with that anymore. So I think what the company needs to do now is essentially rebuild its management ranks, particularly needs a CEO and a CFO. And I think the other thing about the valuation is that this is a private company. I think the investors are worried. This is one of the reasons they want to move on from all of these scandals. They want the company to go public. They want to be able to realise the value. And uh, they're worried that all of these scandals are going to mean that actually that 70 billion valuation is at risk. And so in many ways, they're looking out for themselves. This is what's supposed to happen. This is how capitalism is supposed to work. And what we said in our leader last week is that actually it would be great for the company if it did go public, because when a public company is hit by a scandal, its share price goes down. And that's a very, very clear sign that people aren't happy and it puts pressure on management to do things. With a private company like Uber, that doesn't happen. And the pressure has to be exerted in different ways. And that's what we saw happening this week. Thank you so much. Next, will AI and automation destroy jobs or produce a boom in productivity and prosperity? Probably both. So to understand the changes happening, the media group Bloomberg assembled a series of workshops with a diverse set of thinkers to consider transformations in the economy, fittingly called the Shift Commission. Roy Bahat is the co-chairman of the commission and the head of Bloomberg Beta, Bloomberg's venture capital firm. He has a diverse background in media, technology and government, having worked at McKinsey, News Corp and the office of the mayor of New York and still finds time to teach at Berkeley's Haas School of Business. I think what we will see is sort of bit by bit these different professions will be affected with unpredictable timing, but very spiky, sudden feeling effects. The Economist's senior editor, Kenneth Kukie, asked him what's ahead for AI. What's interesting now, actually, is that lots and lots of boring little applications of AI to make everything from a wireless speaker talk back to you to a job description that can effectively edit itself, to uh, measuring the growth rates of economies by having computers look at satellite images. It's all these kind of more ministerial applications of AI that are about to be incredibly impactful on business and on our lives. And I mean, it's certainly at least as big a trend as the mobile phone. It's maybe at least as big a trend as the internet as a whole. And there's a chance that the internet, which really only affected one slice of the economic value chain, which is the distribution of information, AI affects everything that computers can do. And so the economists who for years have been saying, we don't see computers in any of the productivity data, 
AI might prove them wrong in the next 10 to 20 years. Well, the productivity data may still be mismeasured, but we're going to see these gains. That's right. So where do you expect these gains to come first? I think we will see automation of lots and lots of routine tasks in unpredictable ways. We frequently read in the press about the self-driving truck because it's easy to picture, because trucking is a very common profession, millions and millions of truck drivers. But imagine the self-auditing accountant, the self-lending mortgage officer, the self-researching attorney. And only one of these has to happen for us to have a profound change in the way we imagine work taking place. Must it mean job losses? I can imagine in the case of accountancy that the world probably needs more accountants, but the cost is too high to actually apply them to all the areas where an accountant can go. We put in an AI to lower the cost of it, make the current accountants more productive, and therefore the world gets better accounting practices, Mm -hmm. and we can still keep jobs. The answer is nobody knows, and I'm unsure if it's the right question. One of the reasons we started to study this issue with Bloomberg and an NGO called New America about the future of work was I was tired of reading in the press, all the jobs will go away. No, they won't go away. And debates that seemed like they were just people talking past each other without being settled. And so the way I think about it is let's look at the range of possibilities and see how different they are from one another. The answer is they're a lot less different than you might think. One specific reason is that we have this idea in our head of a job, which is a full-time relationship between a person and an employer with a steady paycheck, and then we wonder, will those jobs go away? The reality is, at least in the United States, fewer than half of all working people even have that kind of relationship today. So what you might see, instead of a job getting eliminated, is it breaking up into pieces and people doing more task-based work, different ages of employees in the workforce taking on different roles. I mean, for example, a much more profound effect on the working economy than the introduction of automation will be the aging of the workforce. And so instead of asking what will happen to the accountants, let's start asking what will happen to the older accountants. And that question may lead us to some different places. Now, the Shift Commission came up with four different scenarios. Where do you come out on how the world will look in the future? I think that we have to plan on the following assumption, that at some point in the next 10 years, there will be at least one, if not more than one profession that gets, if not eliminated, severely impacted within a one to two year time frame. Which profession will it be? I don't know. And it may not even matter that much because the difference between a number of accountants being affected, a number of lawyers being affected, a number of investors being affected may not actually be that big a difference, but somebody is going to be profoundly affected. And so for us to sit here and say, oh, everything's just going to be fine, it's always been fine in the past, I think is a huge mistake. And that's why we need to start looking at policy ideas. We need to start looking at what the business world will do. We need to start looking at what worker groups will do, et cetera, et cetera. Now, capitalism was saved by the welfare state, by FDR and Bismarck as well, by introducing ways in which the state could take off the rough edges of this competition in the economic sphere. But it was also greatly improved by enlightened industrialists, people like Henry Ford, who introduced the five-day work week and the 40-hour week Mm -hmm. and other features of capitalism, the weekend off, for example, so they could drive their cars. What is the responsibility for business in a world in which AI and automation is poised to rip through the economy? So I think that is precisely the question right now. We don't know the answer yet. We need to start having that conversation. And it needs to be a much more multidisciplinary conversation than it was in the past. So that's one side of it. The world of corporations setting new standards for how work ought to function. I'll give you an example of one issue, elder care. 
Today we show up at a new job and we say, what are the child care benefits? It may be as significant in the near future to start saying, what are the elder care benefits? Second side of it, if we believe that these industries are the industries of the future, the other thing that enabled industrialized capitalism to exist was a sustained long-term government investment in the scientific breakthroughs upon which these technologies sit. Roy, that's fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Finally, tuberculosis is an infection that targets the lungs, often with fatal consequences. It has plagued humanity for thousands of years and continues to do so in pockets around the world. But scientists have now found a potential new weapon against it in the form of another pathogen. Joining us on the line to explain more is science correspondent Matt Kaplan. Where are we now, Matt, in terms of treating tuberculosis? I mean, how many people have it these days? In my mind, it's associated with Verdi and La Traviata, poverty in the Victorian era. What's happening at the moment? We see a lot of cases worldwide. I mean, you're talking about around 20 million. Now, when you talk about the overall population of the Earth, that's not that much. But it's still sizable. And the reason researchers have been worried is because roughly 5% of those cases end up not responding to the first-line antibiotics that we've used for so long. And then a fraction of those, basically half, don't respond to second-line forms of treatment, and those people die. And if a drug-resistant version of tuberculosis were to spread rapidly, we'd be in really big trouble. Of course. And researchers, therefore, have found a new way to tackle the infection, you know, aside from, from these drugs that you mentioned. Yeah. So the idea has been that if you could find species of bacteria that also are fighting for territory in your lungs, they might already be using compounds to stake their turf out and keep other bacteria from getting in their way. And this particular team looked at a species of bacteria that tends to do rather well in your lungs if you suffer from cystic fibrosis which is a a genetic disease that causes you to have a lot of mucus in your lungs and therefore a number of weird bacteria can get a foothold. Mm -hmm. And can it be reproduced, this particular bacteria, without having to go back and bother those suffering already from from cystic fibrosis? Well, the, the sample that the researchers worked with in this particular study actually came from a cystic fibrosis patient. And they're not interested in actually growing the bacterium and sticking it in people's lungs. That would be not a good idea. But what they did was they examined the compounds that this bacterium spreads into the, the tissues around it. And one of those compounds, which they named gladiolin, is exceptionally good at inhibiting the growth of, in particular, tuberculosis. And when they tested that drug, gladiolin, out against strains of tuberculosis that are already resistant against a lot of our top-line antibiotics, it worked really well where those antibiotics did not work. So that's why this is getting some attention. There's still a long way to weaponizing gladiolin, as it were, but it's, it's a nice first step, and it, it certainly suggests that we might be able to do something with it. And are people getting too excited, given that back in 2007, uh, there was another kind of putative antibiotic, etnangian, that people got very excited about for TB patients that came to nothing. Is there reason to believe that this time there's greater hope with gladiolin? 
So that was an initial concern and why the researchers met the discovery of gladiolin with cautious optimism initially, because its structure looked so much like the, the structure of the 2007 drug, which is chemically unstable and impossible to wield inside the body. You just can't, you can't turn it into a drug. With regards to gladiolin, while it is very similar in structure, when they tested it out and looked at its chemical formation, it lacks one of the moieties that made the other drugs so vulnerable and ineffective. So it does not have the weaknesses of the 2007 drug and certainly is showing a lot of promise. So that's why it looks like it might be worth an investment in. That's brilliant, Matt. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Miranda. That's the end of this week's Babbage. Don't forget to check out our new blog for the podcast at medium.economist.com. And if you like our journalism, consider subscribing to the newspaper. You can find all the information on our website. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.